Coming up on Tech Nation, we're not just aging. Our proteins are aging, or at least 15% of them. Dr. Karoli Nikolic, the co-founder of Alkahest, describes how they are targeting those proteins to avoid the degenerative conditions we develop as we age. Then, Dr. Tony Fiorino from Electricor tells us about their device, which alleviates the horrific pain of cluster headaches. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about where design meets medicine and a new kind of passport. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2011, I interviewed Dr. Parag Khanna, an economist and the author of How to Run the World, charting a course to the next renaissance. I noted that another economist had been a guest on Tech Nation. That would be Nobel laureate Dr. Mohammed Yunus. He believed that poverty need not exist. In fact, it would someday be in a museum as an artifact of how we used to live. I asked Parag Khanna, do you agree with him? I do agree with him because it's not about money. Poverty is not about money. Poverty is about mechanisms. It's about needs. It's about having your basic Maslowian needs, uh, shelter, water, food, these types of things, having those needs met. And we do have the resources to allow people, to empower them, to enable them to meet those needs. Not give it so, to them, empower them. And that's the big difference. Giving someone something is a one-off thing. That's how you help people. What I argue in this book is that you need to help people help themselves. Teach a man to fish. Very ancient principle. Very obvious one as well. That's how you create a self-sustaining kind of system. That's how you allow local communities to be resilient. If poverty alleviation depends on having all of the resources in the World Bank and them allocating money whenever they have the attention to do so and whenever the money makes it through the fingers of bureaucrats, that's not resilience. It's interesting as well in, in hearing you describe this vision because Dr. Yunus also said if you want to make all the nations equal on the health front, because don't forget, it's a very few countries who hold all the patents on the drugs. It's a very few countries who create a lot of this medical innovation that you've got to be able to enable all the countries to create on a world-class scale. And then they're trading innovation, not just commodity. And one of the things that the Gates Foundation is doing is actually training African universities to have centers that actually develop and produce low-cost seeds and pesticide-resistant strains of seeds and things like this. These are very important innovations that can be made, produced, manufactured in the developing world, in the poorer countries, and then they can also provide for themselves. So again, it's about mechanisms, not so much about money. So legal things like uh, patent uh, regulation, but also technological things. I mean, telemedicine, for example, allows doctors in Canada and the United States to deliver at least healthcare guidance and advice to patients in, in all over the world at almost no cost. And on the face of it, it seems like a very simple notion. But let's take the African universities and researchers developing genetically modified seeds. At least six African countries refuse to have anything genetically modified, no matter how difficult it is, number one. And number two, we have the World Trade Organization saying, wait a minute, if you want to be a member, and many of them are not, then you've got to subscribe to our idea of what patents are all about. I mean, this is a 
you've got to do more than just create the innovation. Well, you know, the World Trade Organization is a very important case study in the sense that it has been so important in the last uh, uh, 50, 60 years in promoting uh, global trade and bringing down trade barriers and harmonizing regulations. World trade has expanded so astronomically since the end of World War II, and it owes itself largely, uh, to a large degree, to the role of the World Trade Organization. But today, you haven't had progress in World Trade Organization negotiations, such as the Doha Development Round, for almost a decade. And yet, world trade is growing, again, tremendously. The reason is because countries want it. Everyone wants to be part of global trade. So even if you didn't have any more World Trade Organization breakthroughs ever for the rest of our lives, you would still have deepening and expanding global trade. You know what we're experiencing right now? We're experiencing the globalization of globalization. Because what we've called globalization has really only been 15 or 20 countries that represent 80 to 90% of world trade. We're expanding that circle now. Countries are getting involved. Brazil and Latin America are trading with Africa. China is trading with Africa. Asians are trading with Latin Americans. It's all globalizing now. And it's happening even without some kind of central arbiter mechanism like the WTO. You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with economist Dr. Parag Khanna about his book, how to Run the World, Charting a Course to the Next Renaissance. He's written a number of books since then. The most recent was published in 2019, The Future is Asian, published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, it's about a universal medical condition which affects us all, age. It turns out there are several hundred of our proteins which age along with us. I speak with Dr. Karoli Nikolic, the CEO and co-founder of Alkahest, about what they're doing in this space. Then Dr. Tony Fiorino from Electricor tells us about their FDA-approved medical device, which has been useful in relieving the pain of cluster headaches. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us that millennials approach health care in a whole different way than baby boomers. And now, Dr. Nikolic. Well, Dr. Nikolic, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, Alkahest is focused on all the human processes uh, that happen as we age. And part of the Alkahest journey started out in Hong Kong. Now, relate that story. I have known a family in Hong Kong who uh, had a patient in the family who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease about 24 years ago. And at that time, there was no drug available for Alzheimer's. So they asked me for advice. At the time, I just left Genentech, where I headed up neuroscience research. And so I gave them a re reasonable overview uh, of the drugs that at that time in clinical development. And so we developed a, a friendship, a growing friendship. I got to know them. They hosted me in Hong Kong a couple of times. I got to know uh, Mr. Chen, who was the... Uh, patient. Uh, he was a remarkable businessman, a very, very successful one. 
And um, I got to know the family, his daughter, his grandchildren, who some of them studied here in, all of them studied here in California, actually. Some of them studied here at UC Berkeley. So I developed a close friendship with them. And about seven years ago, I was in Hong Kong, and at that time, Mr. Chen's grandson told me, Carly, do you know anything about this? You know, you know my grandfather, he became rather demented towards the end of his life, and he received a plasma transfusion because he had a surgery. And then he woke up. It was like the movie Awakening. Uh, he recognized us. He joked. He he was remarkable. It lasted for a day to three days, you know, on the two occasions. And do you know anything about it? And so this was quite striking. And I actually knew of one correlative piece. You know, I could think of one piece that was done by Tony Viscore, a professor at Stanford University, in which he transfused young plasma from mice into old mice. And the old mice became as smart as young mice. So I mentioned this to the grandson, and I called up Tony from Hong Kong, and Tony told me more and more excitement around this. And then the grandson offered me seed funding for a company that uh, potentially <laughs> I Sounds great! <laughs> it, it was a tremendous moment. You know, I was actually thinking of starting something new, and this was just the right moment. And I came back, I sat down with Tony, we developed the business plan, and in one moment I asked him for a name. I said, do you have a name? He said, Alkahest. I said, what is that? It turned out that Alkahest was the fountain of youth in the Middle Ages. And so I, we, we thought that there was an appropriate name, and we started the company. I incorporated the company in January 2014, so more than six years ago. Now, remind us, what's the difference between plasma and blood and a plasma transfusion and a blood transfusion? Mm -hmm. So blood is the complete collection of the liquid as well as the cell components in blood. And plasma is simply just the liquid portion of, of blood. And when people suffer emergencies, you know, when they have a, an accident and they lose a lot of blood, they, the doctor may decide that they require a blood transfusion if they lost so much that they also need to replenish the cells. But most of the time, actually, they only receive a plasma transfusion because only the liquid is given back. What is much easier with the liquid is that you're not giving back any kind of foreign cells into the body. You're only giving the liquid. So that is much favored by, by doctors for transfusion. And then you form an alliance with Griffles. That's right. So, you know, when we started the company, we knew that if we want to mine the wealth of knowledge that resides in plasma, plasma contains more than 10,000 proteins. And so we sort of, at, at that time, we didn't even know exactly, but we were guessing. And so we knew that if we really want to understand what is in plasma and how it ages, how it changes during aging, we needed to partner with a company that had large collections of plasma. 
So we actually spoke with the three major companies in this space. We spoke with Griffos, a company in Barcelona. We spoke with CSL, that's an Australian company. And we spoke with, at the time, Baxter, which was a U.S. company. Since then, it became part of Takeda. And all of them were interested, but Griffos got it like, uh, you know, they they were totally in tune with what we were uh, up to, what we set out to do. And they gave us a, a very impressive uh, partnership offer. And through this partnership, we had access to tens of thousands of samples of plasma. And what was fascinating is that the donor's age ranges between 18-year-olds, so just fresh out of high school or maybe still in high school, all the way to 70, so the freshly retired people. And that's a broad range. So we were able to analyze what is in plasma between 18 to 70-year-old people, and these are normal, healthy people. So that allowed us to establish the baseline, you know, what is in plasma during normal aging. And then we started venturing into diseases. So by now, we've also analyzed a couple of diseases of age, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, uh, inflammatory diseases. So this is now it has grown into a tremendous knowledge base that we built. Now, you told me in an earlier conversation that there are over 10,000 proteins in plasma, in a, in a human plasma, mm -hmm. and that it's really three or 400 that are problematic or decline between the time you're young and the time mm -hmm. that you age. Do you mean they disappear? Do they become faulty, less potent? I, what are the words? How would you describe what happens to them? Yes, that's correct. So, so what we have learned, in fact, in the course of understanding and analyzing plasma from 18 to 70, is we learned about three to 400 proteins decline with age. These are hormones, growth factors that maintain normal body functions, muscle strengths, nerve conductance, velocity, re reaction time. A lot of functions need that constant maintenance. And these decline in concentration. So the tissues from which they come become a bit uh, less productive, they become a bit lazy. And, you know, they so the concentration of these proteins declines. And that leads to a decline in the appropriate functions. Our muscles get a little weaker, our reaction time gets a bit slower, our uh, ability to comprehend new things becomes also a little bit uh, less uh, active. And interestingly, you know, conversely, also about three to 400 proteins increase with age. And these, in fact, tend to be the nasty proteins. These are the proteins that cause damage. They cause inflammation. Inflammation is a good thing up to a little point, you know, a certain amount of inflammation. When we have a, an infection, the body temperature rises. So there is a little bit of inflammation, which is a good thing. But then when it becomes excessive, then these proteins that these nasty proteins that um, are increased with age, they start attacking uh, tissues in our own body. And that becomes a problem that leads to rheumatoid arthritis, leads to osteoarthritis. You know, that leads to the kind of tissue damage and also brain damage and eye function damage 
that then leads to the age-related, very well-known diseases. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Caroline Nikolic, the CEO and co-founder of Alkahest, a San Francisco Bay Area firm that focuses on developing therapies through the science of aging, targeting those proteins which make the difference. It's easy to comprehend, oh, my proteins aren't so good, you're going to give me some good ones to replace, you know, the weakened ones. Mm -hmm. But what about these bad ones? How do you have to take those out or you can just Mm -hmm. compensate for them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And indeed, you know, as we progress with the company, we've been battling these questions and we we have uh, addressed them different ways. So, with the proteins that increase with age, you can do indeed what you said. You, you can try to remove them. Like, for example, dialysis will remove bad proteins from the body. And we, in fact, started just recently a study where we apply a column that is just like a dialysis system, which removes one of these bad players. So it will be sometime in the next year when we will find out the results. You know, do we remove this bad protein and does that lead to an improvement in memory and learning? The other thing we are doing is uh, the pharmaceutical industry has already developed a wealth of drugs that can be taken as pills. And so we also identified another protein which can be blocked with a little pill. And so the drug that's contained in the pill blocks the function of this bad protein. Now that you know what to block. Now that we know what to block. And indeed, we have by now identified almost a 100 proteins that need to be blocked. And so we are systematically working through them. Um, We have... um, either small molecule drugs that block these, or we have um, antibodies that can be used. And as you know, antibodies have become a wonderful uh, modality, uh, a wonderful therapeutic uh, for many cancers, also many inflammatory conditions. Um, We have um, pharmaceuticals that actually are based on antibodies that block specific proteins. So let me get this straight. If I say, I think I really need a plasma infusion, make sure the donor isn't 70 years old. Is that one of the takeaways here? That is definitely a message. Um, And I think, um, in fact, just interestingly, just yesterday, I looked up the average donor's age. And so you can visit, there is an, an industry association called the Plasma Protein Therapeutics Association. And in fact, on their website, you can look up, you know, what is the typical donor age. And as you would probably guess, you know, the most frequent donors are college students, um, you know, young people who make some additional money through a plasma donation. And so, in fact, you know, the the average age of donors is in the range of 30 to 35 years. So it's relatively young. And so when you get uh, plasma transfusion, then very, very likely you will get a young plasma. One of the areas you're looking Mm -hmm. at is wet 
age-related macular degeneration. And we've talked about that on the show before. Mm-hmm. Again, in a, it's related to aging, but the standard of care is, is quite dramatic. I mean, it's mm-hmm. needle injections and, you know, behind the eye. It's not a pleasant type of thing. But this is one of the areas in which you're offering a pill. Now, tell us about the clinical trial that you're going through now. How is it designed? How, how does it work to test mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. Right. So, indeed, we, we are tackling the age-related macular degeneration, which is a, a, a very bad condition because ultimately, in a not too long period, it leads to blindness. And so a lot of people fear this, and, and partly because it's a very negative process. In fact, in a questionnaire for old people, what kind of function would they give up easiest or, or uh, would first. be first? You know, many things go first, and vision is one of the last. Uh, of course, thinking, you know, memory, learning, that ability is the absolute ultimate one, but vision is a very close second. People like to read watch movies, be out there in nature. And so losing vision is a really detrimental process. And there is an approved, the pharmaceutical industry in the last decade, really 15 years already, tackled this problem and in fact solved partly the problem by an injection into the eye. And in fact, the injection into the eye is an antibody that blocks the vascularization, the the formation of blood vessels on the surface of the retina. So that is what what blocks, what leads to the vision loss. What we are doing actually remarkably by blocking one of these nasty proteins, these age-related inflammatory proteins, has shown to improve vision in age-related macular degeneration. Somehow, uh, we are still working out how it works, but uh, somehow, you know, this protects um, vision, and we saw remarkable improvements, as good improvements in vision as with the eye injections. So we are very hopeful that will lead to a breakthrough because what we offer is a daily pill rather than a monthly injection into the eye. We are currently running a study in which we um, we are testing whether the oral pill actually even improves the effect of the eye injection because the eye injection has become the standard of care in the U.S. and also in Europe. So you have to build on that basis because that is the standard of care. We are testing whether the pill that we are giving patients will make the need for eye injections less frequent. So that would be a big gain, you know, if somebody could go to the eye doctor, get an injection once a year or twice a year instead of once a month, that would be a huge relief. You can easily know whether you can see or not. So I can't imagine this has to go on for years and years and years. When do you expect that trial to give us results? So this trial will give us results by middle of next year. And then if we see the kind of results that we anticipate, then we will do a final sort of a definitive study that would lead to approval. And I would guess that it only even has to be equal because the method of delivery is so much better. 
That's absolutely right. And if we manage to reach the kind of improvement that the eye injection gives, then that would be a huge relief. We do have hints on the horizon, actually. We did a study in Europe, in Eastern Europe, in patients who, who did not get any other treatment. And the pill alone, actually, in these patients, improved their vision just as well as the eye injection. So, so we have one basis to build on, and, and that, is, that gives us great hope that this will be successful. Well, I want to go on to something else, but before I do, I want to stay a little bit with the Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. What are you testing? Mm-hmm. What, are you, mm-hmm. what are you looking for? So in the case of Alzheimer's disease, there is a gradual deterioration of learning memory, and it's a really detrimental disease. It's a disease that basically robs you of your identity, of your, of your personality, and ultimately you just don't remember anything. You don't recognize friends, family, loved ones. It's, it's really a de- de- detrimental condition. In, we have conducted two studies. In one study, we looked at the milder form of the disease, and then in the other one, we looked at the severe form, the very advanced form of the disease where patients are already quite demented. The treatment in both cases is an infusion. And what we have done, and it's an infusion of the plasma proteins that are therapeutic, the good ones. So you asked me about the good proteins in that reside in plasma. And so in this case, we infuse the good proteins that are in plasma. And amazingly, we conducted mouse studies where we tested what is the best regimen, what is the best dosing, you know, how often should should the mice get this. And we tried once a week, twice a week, three times a week. You know, in the end, amazingly, we came up with an administration where the mice got it every day for five days, and that leads to a long-lasting improvement in their cognition. This is very old mice, two-year-old mice that are also severely demented. So we translated this to humans. And so we applied exactly the same regimen. The patients receive five daily infusions of the plasma proteins, and then they are left alone for three months. And again, after three months, they get another five daily infusions of the proteins. So this study, the first study where it was mild and moderate Alzheimer's patients, Remarkably, the patients not only remained stable, they even improved a little bit. Their cognitive functions measured by a battery of tests improved. And their activities of daily living, which means, you know, they can brush their teeth, they can button their shirts, tie their shoes, they can function properly, feed themselves, also improved. So this was a huge um, promise uh, on the horizon, which we will be following up with a larger study. In the advanced patients, we did the same regimen. So we gave them five daily infusions of the plasma protein and then again observed them for three months. First of all, the, the information that came back, the results was that the the treatment was safe and we just couldn't tell you know ahead of time these are already frail patients and we didn't know it would be safe it was perfectly safe and 
during the three months observation, the patients did not decline. So normally, you know, in these advanced patients, their, their cognitive function, their mental processing would decline. And in our, our case, they remained stable. So it was a very promising result, again, which we will be following up with a larger study. I've been speaking with Dr. Karoli Nikolic, the CEO and co-founder of Alkahest. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, one biotech company's device for relieving cluster headaches, and Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about a new kind of passport. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Karoli Nikolic, the CEO and co-founder of Alkahest. Now let's go on to something I didn't really associate with aging, post-operative recovery. Surgeries happen at every age. That's true. So surgeries, you know, it can be an, an injury, it can be a sports-related, it can be an accident-related injury, which requires surgery. But just like everything else, you know, as we age, a surgical intervention becomes more difficult for the body to cope with. And a, an investigator at Stanford University, a professor, discovered that, in fact, in elderly patients, there is a very significant inflammatory reaction to uh, surgical intervention. And so he initiated this study. He convinced us that this is a very interesting study, a worthwhile study. And so we are looking at knee surgery as well as hip replacement surgery patients who have a relatively significant intervention. And they have to be hospitalized for a couple of days. They are under observation. And what he discovered was that, in fact, following the surgery, 
there is a very significant increase in the inflammatory proteins that anyhow increase in aging. This is a, uh, there is a multiple of the kind of inflammatory response that is associated with normal aging. So what we are now testing in this study at Stanford University in knee and hip replacement patients is whether we can suppress this uh, inflammatory process. And also, sadly, very often patients also suffer a cognitive decline. So their thinking, their recognition of other people declines. Luckily, mostly it is transient, so it lasts only a few weeks up to a few months, and then it returns to normal. But in our study, we will be uh, also evaluating patients whether this returns faster by giving them the, the infusion of plasma proteins. And you have a big, long list of other things you want to do. We do have a long list, indeed. We, we are also doing a study in two studies, actually, in Parkinson's disease. So in Parkinson's disease, we are doing exactly the two opposite things. In one of the Parkinson's studies, we are giving the patients the good plasma proteins to see whether they actually help. Uh, relieve the symptoms. And in the other study, we are blocking one of the bad proteins that increases with age and contributes to Parkinson's disease. And then we are doing this study in uh, what is called end-stage renal disease. So these are patients on dialysis who would need a kidney transplant. And Unfortunately, as you probably know, there is a shortage of kidney transplants. And so patients who are on dialysis also suffer a cognitive decline. So we will be putting them on another column that helps remove one of the bad proteins. And then we will evaluate whether that helps them recover better or maintain their mental uh, capacity and, uh, and competence longer. Well, Dr. Nikolic, I do have a motto for Alkahest. You can have it. It's called, May the Proteins Be With You. Oh, that's wonderful. That is, you like That's it? a very clever one. That's a wonderful motto. May the proteins be with you. It's, Absolutely. It's, thank you. That's, that's actually very <laughs> clever. Well, I, this has just been terrific. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Thank you, Moira. It was a pleasure. I look forward to it. Dr. Karoli Nikolic is the CEO and co-founder of Alkahest. More information is available at alkahest.com. That's A-L-K-A-H-E-S-T, alkahest.com. The American Migraine Foundation defines cluster headaches as brief, excruciatingly severe headache attacks recurring between one and eight times a day, which can last for weeks and even months. Dr. Tony Fiorino is the chief medical officer of Electricor. I wanted to start with asking you, Tony, how prevalent are migraines and cluster headaches and how well do the available treatments work? So migraine is a very common condition, highly prevalent. About 39 million people in the United States suffer from migraine. Uh, cluster headache is a less common 
a condition that affects hundreds of thousands of patients. And what is that? What's cluster compared with migraine? It's it's a different kind of primary headache. It's it's actually a really devastating condition. Patients are incapacitated with pain during uh, during bouts of cluster. Um, there are treatments available for both, but uh, it, it is a condition. Both conditions, uh, patients' needs aren't fully met by the approved therapies. Our research suggests that 60% of migraine sufferers and as many as 80 to 90% of cluster headache sufferers are not satisfied with current treatments. And generally, this is because there's no treatment that's curative for either of these disorders. Um, The the frequency of attacks may be reduced. The amount of pain may be reduced. The duration of the headache may be reduced. But there's still not a therapy that is uh, making these attacks go away. And the drugs that are used to treat both cluster and migraine are associated with side effects. So what's Electricor then? Electricor has developed a handheld device that stimulates the vagus nerve electrically. And what that does is... What it does? What is the vagus nerve? (laughs) The vagus nerve is a nerve that travels from the brainstem. It's one of the cranial nerves. um, And uh, so it's it, located like in the back of your neck? Or, it, it, yeah. it, it runs through your neck and innervates the heart, uh, many of your organs in the digestive tract, and and receives signals from the body uh, the, and carries them to the brain and also delivers information from the brain to the organs and regulates uh, certain activities. And how does the vagus nerve relate to migraines and cluster headaches? Well, what we know is that when you stimulate the vagus nerve, it can inhibit uh, the sense of pain and can quench attacks of whether they're migraine or cluster headache attacks, reduce the duration and pain associated with those attacks. So we're not looking at it as a cause so much as an inhibitory role in, in working with migraines. Correct. That's exactly correct. So for... Um, Several decades, an implantable device has been available on the market that stimulates the vagus nerve, and it's used to treat patients with epilepsy and severe depression. Uh, Electricor developed a handheld device that can be used uh, quite simply by placing the device against the skin. And I I have it with me. I didn't even think you had a... Had a device there. And as you can see, it's about the size of a cell phone. A little thicker. A little thicker, but lighter. But lighter. And the battery lasts longer. And the battery lasts longer. And Good. you just need to put a little bit of gel on these electrodes to two make little, sure that there's two a... little metal half balls uh, on top. Make sure that there's a contact with the skin. You turn it on. As I mentioned, the vagus nerve runs in the neck in the carotid sheath. So you can so you, find your pulse. So find your pulse under your, under your, under your, in your chin, under, yes. under, your, under your jaw, yeah. And you place the device and... Right there. There's a, you can adjust the I hear that little amplitude. dink, 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 yeah. And you begin to feel a uh, slight twitching How are you in the feel muscle. There? I feel How in there, I feel in there, Tony. <laughs> it keeps going. Uh-huh. Well, you'll eventually notice you might see my lip pulling down a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And this means that you're, you've hit the right amplitude. The electric field that's being generated is very likely to be stimulating your vagus nerve. And you hold this in place for two minutes. I won't hold you, it in place for two minutes because that will be uh, I'll give you $5. a conversation stopper. I was going to say, I'll give you $5 if you hold it for 20 that, <laughs> Well, it shuts off automatically. It shuts off automatically. So, so for five minutes, it, it basically delivers to the vagus nerve some electrical pulses, I would assume. Exactly. And that activates the signaling 
up into the brain that then turns on these inhibitory pathways that can help uh, to turn off the electrical activity in the brain that's leading to a migraine or causing the migraine or cluster headache. Now, you've just pulled that away from your from your neck here. Do you feel anything now? Is oh, no, there's no, there's a, you know, a tingling, tingling sensation yeah. while it's on, but then as soon as it shuts off, you have, uh, you know, no, no uh, apparent feeling of tingling or any residual sensation at all. Now, of course, this is a real smart device. What other kind of intelligence is built into the device? Well, the device itself, the, the nature of the of the electrical signal, a tremendous amount of research went into that uh, to ensure that you could apply enough signal to stimulate the vagus nerve without causing injury uh, or, or discomfort. Um, so the frequency of the signal and the amplitude of the signal have all been subject to a, a lot of uh, both basic science and clinical research. The device itself is um, activated by a card that will activate the device for a month. And you have uh, uh, virtually, uh, within a day, you have nearly unlimited use of the device, uh, if necessary, to treat your headache. Um, and at the end of the month, uh, your physician would give you a refill prescription in order to continue using the device. Well, what do we know about how this helps with migraine? Electro-sponsored clinical trials in both uh, cluster headache and in migraine. Um, those studies have been used to support the FDA clearance of the device. It's cleared for the treatment of pain associated with cluster headache, prevention of cluster headache, as well as a treatment of pain associated with migraine headache. And what those clinical trials showed is that Gamacor can reduce the intensity of pain that a migraine or cluster sufferer experiences. And in cluster, importantly, it is the only therapy FDA cleared to prevent cluster headaches. And it actually prevents them. Like, you know they're coming on and you these treatments, it says, okay, that didn't happen to come on or as much less. Well, you... If you um, use the device regularly, then the number of cluster headaches suffered is, can, is reduced. If you've got a condition like this and you have the onset of one of these headaches, I don't care if it's migraine. I don't care if it's cluster. I'm going to throw everything at it I have. So will I continue to take my prescription medicine and do this? Is that how you anticipate it will be used? Well, it, it can be used in conjunction with a patient's existing medication regimen, uh, because as as we've seen in our clinical trials, whether you let tell them or not, they will. Yeah. <laughs> so what we've seen, the safety profile of the device is really excellent, um, and in fact, for a cluster headache, was used on top of uh, the patient's existing medical regimen. Uh, some patients find really exceptional relief when they use Gamacor, and it in fact, is a substitute for their acute uh, medication that they would typically use uh, to manage a migraine headache, for instance. You're an MD. You've taken care of patients with all of these headaches. How does it? How is it different from you in terms of observing the patient experience with traditional treatments for uh, these headaches 
end with using this kind of a device? What I've seen is patients truly appreciate that this is not a drug. They're not ingesting a foreign agent uh, that may have side effects or may not have side effects. This is a, a natural way of activating the vagus nerve, not a pharmacologic intervention. It's not a drug. And when they receive relief from it, uh, it can be truly profound. Now, this device, you'd, you'd have to get a, a prescription or a directive from a doctor for, right? Correct. It, it is an FDA-cleared device, but it's not available over the counter. Uh, one would see a headache specialist or a neurologist or even a primary care physician who treats migraines or, or cluster headache who could prescribe the device. Many times people have more than just a migraine as a problem. They may have a heart condition. They may have any number of medical conditions. What do we know about using this device uh, along with other conditions you might have? So that's a very interesting question. We believe, on the one hand, that the safety profile of the device makes it a, a, a truly excellent choice for patients who suffer from other conditions, um, who also suffer from migraines, whereas some of the medications that are available to treat migraine uh, may, may have um, safety concerns for specific patient populations, for example, patients who have cardiovascular disease. And this is an area that we'll be looking to broaden our exposure in, in future clinical trials. We also believe that Vagus nerve stimulation, or VNS, um, has applicability in diseases beyond migraine um, and cluster headache. And some conditions that patients with migraine, for example, suffer from uh, commonly may also respond to VNS. But this is an area that requires further clinical study. Well, you're not only an MD, you're also a PhD researcher. You've done you've you've gone to school a lot, Tony. We all that is we true. all appreciate it. Let me ask you this. Why do you think it works? Well, it works because we can activate the vagus nerve and there is a vast body of evidence uh, from animals, from humans, showing that Stimulating the vagus nerve can produce positive beneficial effects in the brain in a variety of conditions. Again, not only headache, but in other conditions as well. We know certain brain regions that are activated when you stimulate the vagus nerve with gamma core, for example. And those appear to play a role in the sensation of pain in, for headache sufferers. So we know that it does we're not just sure, exactly sure why it does. Would that be fair to say? I think that would be fair to say. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Dr. Tony Fiorino is the chief medical officer of Electricor. More information is available at electricor.com. That's electro, E-L-E-C-T-R-O, core, C-O-R-E, electricor.com. Doctors' offices, hospital environments, even medical tests and treatments, they all seem the same no matter who the patient is. Technation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us that's changing. Welcome back, Daniel. Good to be back. If there's anything that's been going on in the last few years is this shift to patient-centered health 
patient-centered health care, patient-centered treatments, patient-centered everything. Is that really true in your perspective? Well, patient-centered can mean many different things. We also hear kind of buzzwords like personalized medicine and precision medicine. Um, and that could be something as specific as the, the drug that works exactly for your cancer, all the way to uh, an app that might really match you and your personality. And so I think what's getting interesting is this convergence of, you know, drugs, digiceuticals, clinical spaces, wearables that need to integrate what's often called uh, design thinking. You know, where, where does design meet medicine? How do you have precision interventions that match um, whether someone's a baby boomer or a millennial? So let's just take those two examples. We've got baby boomers, um, 70 million in the U.S., millennials, over 100 million. Uh, for a baby boomer, you know, health care is very disease care episodic, you know, sick care. For the millennial, it's more self-care and continual. Um, they're happy to Snapchat or chat their, their doc on, 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 their, on their mobile device. The baby boomer often wants the more in-person care. So that's sort of the design of, like, where you get care, what's your intervention. Um, the, uh, uh, the baby boomer might feel more passive about their health care, where the millennial might f- feel more responsible. So there's different perspectives uh, on, on care, and, and what does it mean to interact with your clinician? So that means the interfaces, again, if it's, uh, a mobile app from your insurance company might need a very different flavor for your uh, a millennial than a baby boomer. You might have the exact same disease, a 17-year-old with type 1 diabetes versus a 70-year-old, but the millennial might need, you know, different forms of incentives and points and gamification than the, the, than the baby boomer. And our technology is now enabling you to adapt. Uh, you can set the language. You can set the font size in many cases. Um, some of the, the wellness-type apps will, uh, you know, ask you, uh, questions that might change the design of your your experience. So, when we think about healthcare and healthcare solutions, particularly technology, people t- tend to think about the individual widget, the drug, the device, the app. Um, I think we often need to think about the solution and the patient journey. Um, even something uh, as timely right now. You know, how do you think about testing for COVID? Um, there's several places where the entire town was tested, but they learned a lot of lessons about. You know, what, how do you set up the testing facility? Is it drive-through? Um, how do you keep people safe? What is the design of um, an intensive care unit uh, now? Or how do you repurpose a general ward? All those sort of elements, as an example, PPE, personal protective equipment, has been in short supply. If you sort of use design thinking principles and now took the pumps out of the ICU room using longer cords uh, or pump cords, you could prevent having have the nurse or doc go in to adjust the pumps. That's a bit of sort of design meets healthcare. Or in many cases, you're seeing the entire redesign of the clinic space. Um, at Dell Medical School, it's a new medical center down in, in, in Austin, they've even sort of gotten rid of waiting rooms. So they essentially... Um, have the patient and their family in one room and the specialists come to them and they have almost like the front stage and the backstage like Disney World has. So it changes the whole patient experience and patient journey. Or something that involves design is how we see our lab results. I mean, think about how most of your lab results uh, come as a printout, you know, a few, few letters and numbers that don't make often sense to the, to the layperson. Uh, how do you redesign that in color in ways to understand the scales that can translate? You know, what does that cholesterol really mean in context? Um, our friend Thomas Getz, when he was the uh, uh, editor for Wired magazine, did a great story on sort of reimagining the uh, blood test, giving it a makeover and some pretty simple design elements, putting in color, putting in the number in context 
versus someone new and your age uh, made things much more um, interesting and engaging for the patient and even the clinician. We are in the uh, humans having to consume a huge amount of information and perceive it in ways that they were never expected to before. Right. We now have exponential amounts of data, but that data needs to be simplified into actionable information that, again, matches Moira versus Daniel. We might have the same medical issue, but need to sort of perceive it in different ways and communicate the potential in different ways. And then when we happen to go into a clinic, that journey, let's say you need uh, a a knee replacement or some orthopedic procedure, the standard way, you know, you have your pre-op visit, they send you home with a a, a pack of printed material, which you may may or may not never look at. You have some some consent forms, uh, can be quite confusing. You go and have the, the operation. You might have some drugs and go home with some more forms, on, often on paper. Um, if you think about reimagining that experience, how could you appify that? How could you have the pre, prehab app that tells you about your patient journey, what to expect, maybe even runs you through the consent with a quiz and understands where you have gaps in your knowledge? Um, then when you're leaving the surgical uh, realm, you go home with a smart app that can ask you questions how you doing today? Any swelling in that leg? Uh, any fever? And so that the nurse or doc doesn't need to call you or doesn't need to wait for you to call them late, um, you can have a sort of a, a virtuous feedback cycle that integrates the workflow elements and the information in, in super um, relevant ways. Because the doctor or the nurse or the orthopedic surgeon doesn't see, need to see every report of everybody doing okay, but they want to have up level to them the patients who seem to be having trouble and to find that trouble early. So that's a bit of a design element in, say, example of a surgery. It also goes down to the ergonomics for that surgeon of the newly designed robotic device that they may need to use. Does it help them prevent having back pain? How do you integrate the the uh, f- feedback on a virtual reality headset is just involved in surgical robotics these days? How do you think about integrating in um, omics information? Uh, now we have, again, when you show up in my clinic, I might have your genome, your microbiome, your Fitbit data. Uh, all this element now can, cannot be conceived of by the normal human brain. How do we synthesize that in a way that gives you uh, actionable information that's not, not overwhelming but, but helpful in the immediate term and long term? I would also say you know, a lot of health is related to information and transmitting that, and certainly public health, which is super important, particularly in the age of pandemics, is you know, how do you communicate to folks um, in clever ways around what's important to them. For example, it may be how do you, again, communicate to a a millennial versus a baby boomer about washing your hands or uh, social distancing. That needs to be done in in very contextual ways, and it can be be made entertaining. So part of design elements for sort of the health and preventative side is to make it something engaging, uh, to make it delightful. And when you can sort of bring those elements into health, it's not something that you wait to do when you get sick, but can become part of your sort of daily process. We talked about passports. Tell people what those are. Well, there's often this term that's coming up I'm called passporting that might relate to your COVID status. So we're in a time now where many folks are getting tested, uh, their blood tested to see if they carry antibodies that suggest that they've had the COVID infection and hopefully are then protected uh, from future infections. Soon, hopefully, we'll have a vaccine, and we'll be measuring to see whether you have the antibody response that indicates you're protected from COVID. Um, But then what do you do with that information? What's the design element from getting that lab result that might show up on a fax machine in many cases into something that can be literally integrated into your actual physical passport when you want to travel from one state to another or go on a transatlantic flight? So how do we think about the ability to 
have sometimes simple information, you're positive or negative, or more complex information, keep it secure and private and, and uh, in, the, in the safe hands using some technologies like blockchain that's just coming into board. And then how do you integrate that into your digital record or your, again, your physical passport so that as we want to return to a more normal life and even the setting of, of a COVID pandemic, that design element from how you get the test, how the data comes to you so you understand it, how that gets integrated into the workflow and the uh, IT systems, which will enable us hopefully to travel, travel more safely and return to work or to school. And, of course, all of this fits into, oh, golly, how much does everybody know about me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, privacy uh, is, you know, has different levels and even different cultures. You know, in Europe, the GDPR rules are much more stringent than, let's say, in Asia. You can now be forgotten by Google searches if the you want right to be. The right to be forgotten, yes. But there's also a power in this. We've talked about the idea of being a data donor and the ability to build these sort of Google and Google Maps and Waze Maps of, of health, where when you see how others have done and their experiences and can share that, hopefully in privacy-centric and anonymized ways, you can build better um, health experiences for patients like you on similar trajectories with maybe similar genetics or similar localities, how we interact with that information, how we choose to share it is all influenced by design. And uh, there's tremendous opportunity if you're out there as a designer, uh, whether it's a graphic artist or an architect, how you design the physical space. Many of our Hospitals and clinics, you know, look scary. The four walls are very clinical. We've now seen many settings where they integrate in meditation spaces and cooler uh, walls, uh, curves. Uh, we know that if you are looking at a window from your hospital room at greenery, you recover faster than if you're looking at a brick wall. So all these sometimes subtle design elements and, and environmental pieces can play a role into recovery uh, from physical diseases uh, and also improve our mental health and resilience. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming in. All right. Stay safe. Thanks. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician scientist and an innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.